Welcome to the Shelton Church of the Nazarene podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear sermons that have been preached on our Sunday morning gatherings. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. But we just read from Luke chapter 24, and if you have been here for the last couple of months, you would know that Luke is a unique retelling of the gospel, that it starts off with weird stuff and it wraps up with weird stuff. That in the very beginning, the Gospel of Luke tells of virgins getting pregnant. That's weird. Then it talks about barren old women getting pregnant. That's pretty weird too. Then it talks about the husbands of those old barren women not being able to talk, even though their profession was to talk. So if you don't know who I'm talking about, it's Mary, that's also... Uh, Zechariah, that's the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist would show up, and then he'd be this crazy guy out in the wilderness calling people the brood of vipers. And then they'd say, cool, can you baptize us? That's weird. And then continuing on, this guy named Jesus would show up. He was the one born of the virgin. And he would show up to this weird guy named John, who was apparently the one to prepare the way for this Messiah figure, and be baptized by this weird guy named John at the beginning of Luke. And then he would go on to to prepare himself in the most weird way possible. (laughs) Lily forgot her shoes, apparently. Okay. Kason forgot his shoes, too. Can you bring them out to him, Lily? Be a good sister. Thank you. Anyways, he would prepare himself for what he was going to do by not eating for 40 days, which, again, is kind of weird. And while he was not eating, he would face temptations. He would prove that he was a pure and blameless sacrifice. He would be tempted with meeting his own selfish desires by by eating, by turning rocks into bread, by, by deciding to be a political influential person, or by exerting his power. Satan would tempt him for 40 days. After this, after he kind of proved that he was this pure and blameless sacrifice, even though he was fully God, also fully man, able to be tempted, he would then go and call some fishermen. And in probably the most annoying way, after they had worked all day, say, hey guys, I mean, not to tell you how to do your job, but you've been doing it wrong this whole time. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? How many people have had a supervisor, oh, you're doing it wrong, and that just irks you. But this random guy that you don't even know comes up and says, hey Peter, I know you're sweaty. I know you're hot, I know you've been working all day, and you're washing your nets, which is obviously a very clear-cut sign that you're done fishing for the day, but let's actually go and fish right. Can you imagine how angering that would be? So this whole Jesus-Luke thing is so weird. It's so crazy, and then you just see what he talks about and does, and the way that he calls his followers to follow him and live. Telling people, yeah, you know what? You should love God above everything else. And then you should love your neighbor as yourself. And this was to people that their neighbors were literally out to get them most days. That it was was a tooth for tooth, eye for eye sort of a society. That there was this group of Romans that were oppressing this group of Jews. And so what they actually wanted was a Messiah that would get rid of all their problems. But instead, this guy, Jesus, is like, nah, you should just love those people. 
Love even your enemies. That's weird. And then continuing on to last week, the triumphant entry. If you were here, you saw two of our littles depict what a normal king would do, riding in on this horse, all frilly, all high up, so that they could look down on other people to exert their power and their dominion, their influence, and literally look down on the crowds as they came into their city to say, yeah, this is my place, this is my kingdom, this is where I live. But Jesus doesn't do that. His triumphant entry is on a donkey. And if you were here last week, if not, you can YouTube angry donkey versus big horse to understand what donkeys are like. They're weird. They're loud. They yell. And they're really small. They're not used for war. They're not battle steeds. You wouldn't ride into battle in a very kingly way on them. They're used as pack animals in times of peace to carry food, to carry supplies, or to carry a savior, a messiah, who is inviting people to follow him to be a part of this crazy, upside-down, weird-looking kingdom that offers something different that the world can't offer. And then Good Friday comes, and there's a lot of questions at play, even some of Jesus' most faithful followers who... Up until this point, kind of bought that, man, this guy's kind of weird, but I like it. I mean, he does some crazy stuff. I mean, that whole raising Lazarus from the dead thing, that was different. But that was cool. That whole, he healed that person over there. He, he forgave this person. He said that this gospel message was good news for people like me. And he did that in his home church. And even though that was what the Bible said, the people tried to kill him. He just kind of said, nah, you're not going to kill me today. That's going to be a thing that happens later. There's something about him that is crazy and mysterious and awe-inspiring, so I'm going to stick with him. But even on Good Friday, the most faithful of his followers, even Peter himself, struggled. Because on Good Friday, there was despair. See, they had in their minds this certain type of normal king. But as we understand in Luke, Jesus was anything but normal. Kind of weird. On Good Friday, it seems like they lost seems like this kingdom and this king at its head failed. It seems that, that it didn't work or pan out exactly the way Jesus said. But then Easter happens. Then Luke 24 happens, and I will tell you in no uncertain terms that this very unique, very different, very countercultural way of doing things only continues. See, in Luke 24, sure, Jesus raises from the dead, and that is incredible in and of itself. That's something that most people have heard on this planet. That's something that obviously we correlate Easter with, and that is significant because what that is is this sacrifice on our behalf so that we can have a right relationship with our Creator. Jesus makes this bridge that He simply invites us to walk across to say, yes, receive this gift of grace and salvation, and you can have a relationship with your Creator but there's still something very unique at play in this story. See, I don't want to belittle that Jesus rose from the dead because that's miraculous, but that is something that most of us would focus on every Easter. What I want to focus on is who found out first? So we just read the passage. Think about it. Who found out first? Because it's one thing for Jesus to have conquered the grave, that in and of itself is cause for celebration. But how does it pertain to us? And I think the answer to that question is revealed in who 
found out first why was it these people that Jesus decided to reveal himself to in the beginning? Who was it all along that was a part of this whole gospel good news upside down kingdom of heaven on earth movement? See, the first people that found out were women. And especially then, that was not the way to do it. Women were essentially owned second-class citizens. And these women in particular, by the way, all four Gospels shares that these women were the ones that found Jesus in the tomb, so it wasn't like Luke had some sort of little pet project going on. But in all the Gospels, and particularly in John and Mark, it specifically says Jesus himself revealed first and foremost to Mary Magdalene before anybody else. But it says that those that first learned of the resurrection were all women. Now if you asked, and this is going to sound terribly rude, so forgive me preemptively, but I'm going to say it and I'm going to explain it. That's a terrible idea. If you asked a Jewish man, uh, you told the women first? Uh, but they... And they're going to explain a whole bunch of reasons why that's a bad idea. Because women had no power. They had no influence. They had no pull. Apart from men, they had no worth based on the human culture. So why would he pick the most unique group of people to first reveal himself to? I think that's something worth pondering. I mean, for me based on a human understanding of how power, how information, how influence is shared and disseminated, it might make more sense for Jesus to say, hey, Pilate, it was a bad idea trying to kill me. I'm back. And then Pilate would be like, oh, that's weird. But then if Pilate said Jesus raised from the dead, it's kind of like, that is human law now. It would almost be the equivalent of, look it, I YouTubed Jesus' resurrection, because that's kind of how we are today, right? If you don't see it on video, it didn't really happen. You can pretend like that's not the case, but you know, like, uh, I have to see it. Back in the day, having women revealing the truth was kind of the equivalent. You had to be there. Uh, I took the video, but it didn't actually save. Like, sure, you took the video. Sure, it didn't save. Oh, yeah, there's a glitch with the upload. Uh-huh, sure. But maybe not even just Pilot. What? I mean, Peter? Peter's a man. He could have revealed himself to Peter. But no, he chose these women to reveal himself to. He chose these interesting choices of women to reveal himself to. And you can read their names. It's Luke 24, and I think it's verse 8. These women are not, this is not the first time they're mentioned in the Gospels. These women have been with Jesus for a while. These women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others, had been a part of Jesus' story already. This is not the first time they were mentioned. One of the first times in this particular gospel that these women were brought up is in Luke chapter 8. And you can earmark that real quick because I'll refer to it briefly. I'll make mention of some of the <laughs> backgrounds of these women based on Luke 8. But Luke 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, these women are also mentioned. Well, at least, at least two of them. The first one that's perhaps notable, and maybe, I guess, we could argue, makes sense that Jesus would reveal himself to is 
Mary, the mother of James. Presumably, based on family ties, based on names that we see in the Bible, this was Jesus' aunt. So it kind of makes sense. You would want your family to know, hey, I know you were really sad on Friday, but I'm back. It's cool. Like, hanging out with your mom and your aunt and your dad and your cousins, like, I'm back. Those would, that's like kind of a natural, as far as humans go, the first people that you would say, hey, I'm back. It's cool. They didn't actually win. Let's tell the world. So that one, I mean, I guess, almost makes sense based on human understanding. But then we have Joanna. And Joanna is specifically mentioned in Luke chapter 8 as having very unique ties. In Luke chapter 8, this is what it says. That there were the twelve with Jesus. And in verse 2, it says, Along with some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. It specifically says in verse 3 that Joanna was one of these people that was with Jesus. And that she was the wife of a servant of Herod. And if you dive deeper into that, this servant of Herod was the household manager for the king of the empire that oppressed Jesus' very people. And it also says that these women helped provide for the resources for the ministry. So in no uncertain terms, people like Joanna, who were married to officials in Herod's kingdom, bankrolled Jesus' ministry, which is kind of unique. She had a direct connection into the earthly kingdom realm. She lived in probably a very nice house. She probably had a decent salary. She probably had funds at her disposal that maybe some of these other women didn't have, and she chose to give that up, to give it up to leave Herod's household, to walk around with a Jewish carpenter, and to help bankroll the crazy things that he was doing. So she's a part of these women in Luke 24 that Jesus first is revealed to, that the resurrection took place. She had money. She was directly connected to Herod. That was interesting. But perhaps the most interesting choice in these three was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is made a lot of in a lot of different denominations. But basically what we know about her is that she was possessed by demons. That she had seven demons, to be exact. And that Jesus cast them out. And as if this needed to be said, being demon-possessed was not a great thing. Culturally speaking, those people were ostracized. They are outcasts. We see some of those demon-possessed in the Gospels living out in the tombs, away from the rest of society. So much in that culture would say that if you had some sort of terrible thing happen to you, such as demon possession, it was God's punishment or judgment upon you. That you obviously did something wrong, that you lacked faith, that you committed some sort of sin. So Jesus heals this woman who, in the eyes of the culture around her, was the worst of the worst. And now, in a complete 180, she is one of the first, if not the very first, based on some gospel accounts, person Jesus is revealed to. This isn't the only notable appearance she has in the Gospels either. She stood at the foot of the cross on Good Friday while he was being crucified. She never once gave up. She was there to the bitter end, even there when he was buried in the tomb. Never once leaving his side, she was a very devoted follower. And she, along with the other women, 
are said to have financially supported the ministry of this Jewish carpenter named Jesus, who seems to have a knack for gathering very unique and perhaps even odd characters to be around him. See, I would give them a label. I hate labels, but I feel like it's helpful for us today, and I'll explain why. Jesus reveals himself, too, and uses the unlikely. These outcasts, these unique people from all walks of life, and he gathers them together for greater purposes that he is at the center of. See, Jesus could have done it differently. He could have chosen the likely. He could have taken the route towards power and influence. He could have revealed himself to Pilate first, to Herod, or even maybe just to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious elite of the day. He could have picked the most credible of witnesses to be revealed to for his resurrection news to to hear, to be heard by first, but he didn't. So we have to ask, what does that say about him? And how does that apply to us? See, we have been in this season, dating all the way back to December, this season that is centered on who Jesus is, and we've been studying him and why he came to this planet and what it means for us. In December, we celebrated Advent, the coming of a Messiah. We celebrated this, we were excited about it, and we kind of have a thousand or two years removed from the the original event, but in that day, they were expecting a certain type of king to come and save them. And then what was more interesting about this season is that we also, in January, celebrated this day called Epiphany, where we started to see the first signs that maybe this is a little different than the way kings operate normally. Where instead of just being for the Israelites, just being for the Jews, we had these wise men from the east come and worship the baby Jesus. Which basically meant that this new kingdom the Son of God was establishing was something that was invited and welcomed to all, that all could be a part of, that all could participate within, which is very different. Normally kingdoms are exclusive. They come with citizenship and walls and legal status. But then continuing past Epiphany, we just studied Jesus and the way that he lived and the things that his followers did and the teachings that he taught and who he interacted with. And what's interesting about this entire story of Jesus is that he is not who we expected him to be. He is not who we anticipated him to be, but he is exactly who we needed him to be. See, this series that we have last most recently been in has been called For God So Loved. The story of this book is about a God that loves his creation, a God that desperately wants to be in a relationship with that creation, but that creation chooses not to do that. And so this God doesn't give up, continues to try and try again. That's basically what the Old Testament is about. That God's people, God's family, choose to rebel against him. Say, you know what, God, we know you know best, and you said we should do this, but we really like golden calves. You know what, God, it's really great you promised us this land that's flowing with milk and honey, but there's really big people that live there. That's scary. So then they get a 40-year time out in the desert. And then once they finally live in the land, they have all sorts of headaches, and they start to see that other human kingdoms have human kings, and they say, you know what, God? I know you're supposed to be our king and we're supposed to live a different way, but 
we kind of like how easily accessible human kings are. And they continue to make choice after choice after choice after choice to be just like everybody else instead of the people God called them and created them to be. And then Jesus comes and kind of atones for all of this, not kind of, but explicitly atones for our never-ending long list of mistakes and sins and rebellion against our Creator. And it's all done because of love. Because God created the ability for us to choose, and He wants us desperately to choose Him. Because He loves us. So what we see in this story is that is that God loves all of us, even the most unlikely of recipients, that there is no pre-qualifications for his love and for his grace. That we have this book that, that scholars have torn apart that has been the most vetted document possibly in history, that it is the most researched and perhaps has the most source material of any document ever book that points to this love. And that we as a people claim to have this faith, this Christian faith, which that word can be so loaded in today's day and age because sadly enough, there are too many that claim it that don't look a whole lot like Jesus. But that this faith is this faith rooted in the love our Creator has for us. And so Easter, Easter today is this statement, this stamp, this final word that says we have a good king. That this good king brings the most unlikely of individuals to be his people. And that he works amazing and wonderful things in and through their lives because he loves us. So for us today, much like those that we read in this book, much like the women, much like the disciples, the the apostles, we have a choice. God's not going to force us to love him back. He's not going to say, you have to. But he asks that you would choose to. That this is a kingdom unlike any other, founded on completely different values, with a completely different kind of king that is different than any other human kingdom we have ever seen. But with it is this open invitation for all to be part of it. To be a part of this uniqueness, this unlikeliness, this amazing, wonderful, transformative love made possible by what happened on Easter Sunday so long ago. So for today, how this applies is simple. The world says that these women were disqualified, but Jesus disagreed. He said, even these women... Even these women hold a place in this kingdom and at a very valuable place. And the world might be telling you the same thing, that you've done too much or you're too far gone or you're not whatever, fill in the blank. But Jesus says, nah, my kingdom's different than that. All are welcome. All have a place. All can be part. But you have to choose. You have to want to do that. See, what all these women have in common, what all these disciples have in common is they left their life before Jesus behind and dove headfirst into a completely new way of living. Some of them had a lot of stake. Some of them had a cushy life. Like Joanna, they had to leave behind some serious things that the world probably thought was crazy. A cush house, 
nice standing because of a husband, but they instead chose a king named Jesus, who was a servant, who was humble, who decided to change the paradigm once and for all so that we could have what's really most important, and that's a relationship with our Creator. So the invitation is open for us always, every day. And the invitation is not just this one-time thing. Sure, we can initially say, God, we want to be a part of this kingdom. What does that mean? But it's something that we have to daily continue to do. That God says, or that Jesus says, that his followers are to daily take up their cross and follow him. That doesn't mean that we have to daily be nailed to this piece of wood, but that means daily we have to be reminded that we are called to live a different way if we claim to be a part of this kingdom. And that there are amazing and incredible perks, aside from just, I get to go to heaven when I die, sorts of perks. But that as a result, we might be able to live out the things that God called us to live out because he created us to live them out. That nothing could be more fulfilling than being a part of this kingdom. So what this says, church, what, what Luke 24, 1 through 12 says to us today about Jesus is that he is good. That he is worth following. That with him, wrongs are made right. That good wins out over evil. And that life has meaning and purpose when we follow him. It says that he calls us to live in a different kingdom. One where all are invited to claim citizenship. One that calls its participants to live a life overflowing with love. And it is all because God loved us first. I'm going to pray, and in a moment, we're going to have a time of reflection. We're going to have a video play. It's a song by Lauren Daigle called You Say, and it gets to the heart of this Jesus using the unlikely that God's love is transformative because of this gift that Jesus gave us in his own death and resurrection. But let's pray, church. God, we thank you this morning for, for the incredible truth that we read in your Gospels, that somehow your love is so transformative that it would even be able to take the most unlikely of individuals to be used for your amazing purposes here on this planet that you didn't choose the normal way of doing things. You didn't decide to reveal yourself to the Herods, the Pilots, or the Pharisees and Sadducees, that instead you chose what society might think of as the least of these. That your kingdom is so countercultural that it would actually welcome everybody to take part. That all of this is so deeply rooted in the love that you have for us, God, that this is this love that you freely offer us, that you want to work in and through us, God, so that your kingdom can continue to spread and grow. God, we thank you this morning for the amazing gift that is your son, that is the resurrection, what it has to say about who we are and where we find our identity on this planet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What? What's going on? He's in the hospital right now? Yeah, they were doing a criminal home last night and they left.
Okay. Well, let's pray first, and then we can, we can play the video. God, we thank you for Aaron and for his dad, Joe. And we pray that whatever is going on, that you would give doctors abilities and skills, the intelligence to make wise decisions, that whatever medical intervention or divine intervention be possible, that, that it would happen. God, we know you are a God that can do incredible things, as we have already pondered and discussed on this Easter day. God, we just pray that in this situation, you would give abilities, give insight, that you would touch Joe, that you would give his body strength, and that, that you would move and work in ways that, that Luke tells us you have done already, that your presence would be made known, that you would give comfort and peace to Aaron and to the family, and that you'd work in incredible ways on today. Easter, God. We thank you for the gift that we have in simply being able to talk to you and pray to you and ask for you to intervene in these ways, God. And we just pray that you would do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you would like to know more about our church, please visit us at sheltonnaz.org. You can hear more sermons, you can tithe online, and you can see our current events. Thanks again for listening. We will see you next time.